0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. So last week, uh, anybody remember what we talked about? I mean, you slept since then. Anybody remember what we talked about? We introduced the subject of God, yes. And the attributes of God. And we talked about a specific category of attributes for God known as the big word... The omnis. Look, we did learn about the omnis. In-communicable. The incommunicable... Okay, so we're doing systematic theology, and when you <laughs> do systematic theology, you have to learn big words. That's what that means. And one of the big words that we have to learn on this one is the incommunicable attributes of God. And what that means, um, those are um, character traits and natural attributes of God that He does not share, He does not communicate those to creatures. Right? So God is omnipresent and omniscient, and we are not. Right? We are limited. He is infinite. We are finite. Last week we talked about God's eternality, Right. the fact that God has no beginning. And no ending. God always was. And then we found out that God always is. We learned that God is omnipresent. He's, he exists outside of the medium of time. He's not bound by it in any way. He does not change. We learned about immutability. We learned that God is immeasurable. Remember we talked about um, the basketball team from Hickory. And how the coach calmed them down by teaching them, you know, showing them that the basketball court in the state championship game was just as big as the one that they had back home. Well, God is immeasurable. We can't get our arms around Him. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. All of those things. And in other words, we were studying the unique Godness of God. That's what those divine attributes are all about. And I referenced a work. This Baptist Confession of Faith from 1689. And I'm just going to read the chapter on that issue because I love the language of it. And I'm going to read it in the old language rather than the new language. This is from chapter 2 of the 1689 Second London Confession. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence is in and of Himself infinite in being and perfection whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself a most pure spirit invisible without body parts or passions who only hath immortality dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto who is immutable immense eternal incomprehensible almighty every way infinite most holy most wise most free most absolute Working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. Most loving, gracious, merciful, long suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments. Hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. It's a good description. By the way, I'm not going to give this one away, but I highly recommend you pick one up. Last week, we started in our discussion of the Godhead, theology proper, God Himself. And we talked about those things that He is uniquely. He embodies those attributes in a state of absolute perfection, and these are not attributes that He shares with us. However, there are some attributes that God possesses that He does share with us. So I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 5 with me just for a moment. And we're going to be jumping around all over the place tonight. So keep your Bibles handy or your your phone engaged. And we will flip around. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1. The Apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. He's already given them this rich gospel theology. And now he is applying that gospel theology. But he's not divorcing our practical theology from the nature of who God is. He says this to the, to the church, therefore be imitators of God. And that's a challenging thing. There's all these things that God is and that God does that we cannot imitate, but obviously there are some things that we can be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now I love this passage, this this little verse here, because it gives me an opportunity to do this. This verse does not say that we are to imitate God so that we will become the beloved children of God. It says we are to imitate God because we are the beloved children of God. This is just Gospel theology being writ large in the practical applications. As beloved children, we imitate our Father. We don't imitate our Father in order to become beloved children. If that makes sense? Two different things. And then he goes on and he says, how are we going to imitate God preeminently right here? He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us. He doesn't say walk in love so that Christ will love us. But as Christ has loved us, we walk in that love. So there are attributes of God. There are things that God has done that we as His children are to walk in, to reflect. These are called the communicable attributes of God. Those aspects of His character and nature that He reveals to us and that we have the ability to reflect. And I want to start with the one that Paul mentions here in Ephesians, and that's the attribute of love. So we're going to talk about four of the communicable attributes tonight. Uh, love, holiness, grace, and mercy. Next week we'll talk about justice and wrath and patience and maybe a couple of more. Um, if you're just looking at a systematic theology that you might pick up. There's two chapters in Grudem Systematic on this. He has 13 in the first chapter. And how many does he have in the second chapter? Uh, Yeah, 20 total. So there's a lot we could talk about. We talk about the wisdom of God, the spirituality of God, all of these different things. I'm not going to talk about all of them. I'm just going to talk about a handful of them. And I want to start with the fact that God is... Love, or the I want us to talk about the love of God. Does anybody question the love of God or do we just assume the love of God? You say, have we ever? Well, of course we have. Generally speaking, do we question the love of God or do we assume the love of God? And I think that could be a very culturally defined question, or answer at least. Atheists probably would say, big question. Yeah. How could a loving God this? How could do this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those questions definitely come up. If you say the. Well, because it does say, I, I can't think of a, a purpose, but it does say God loves us. Mm-hmm. God, he gave, he gave His only begotten Son because He loved us. Yeah. yeah. And it, I think that fits with some of the other things. Previously in, in this, I mean, this circumvented, we're basing it on what the scriptures say. So, yeah. Can... yeah, I contend that apart from a few, uh, well, and it's becoming more and more common nowadays, but I would contend that apart from a few that might hold to an atheistic position or maybe have had a particularly terrible experience of life, the general warp and woof of. Um, Belief about God in America is the assumption that God is loving. It's been so ingrained into our cultural mindset that we just take it for granted. Um, I mean, I don't know when the last time it was that we've seen a football game where John 3.16 is not held up by, on, on a poster in the end zone. Somebody's kicking the football through the old goalposts and you see it. Right? A- a- as kids, so many of us were taught John 3.16, we memorized John 3.16, the expectation and understanding of the love of God is just ingrained there. Personally, I can't think of a time in my life, even prior to my conversion, when I thought of God in any other way than the fact that He is loving. And I believe that even in those atheistic arguments, that even atheists assume that if a God exists, that he or she should be loving. And that's part of their argument. Like, this is not loving. And God should be loving. The assumption that if God is, that He should be loving, it's writ large on our hearts and on our culture. It's one of those ideas that our culture simply takes for granted because that's what we've heard all of our lives. That's what we've been taught. But have you found, maybe you would disagree with me on that point, but I'll ask a follow-up question. Have you found that there are a lot of individuals who assume that God is loving and yet they define love in very unbiblical terms. When we talk about God's love, we must understand love in a biblical way. And one of the best ways to understand God's love is to look at some of those passages like John 3:16. That express in very clear detail what it looks like for God to show his love to us. And, and in him showing his love to us, we see something about the nature of God. That love is, is from God is clearly defined by him giving of himself to others who are very undeserving. Now, beyond John 3:16, I want to look at first John chapter 4. Uh, partly because I spent a lot of time studying 1 John a couple of years ago and teaching to the church, but um, go to 1 John chapter 4 because this idea of God's love and it being a communicable attribute that we are to share, but also God's love being defined in, in a unique sense, it's all in this one passage. 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. And John is writing to the church. I believe the church in Ephesus. And he's writing and he says, Beloved, this is 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Right? So there's the command. There's the part that we're to communicate and reflect. For love is from God. There's the part of God's character being displayed to us. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So, if we're going to define God's love, we have to understand, at least in this, that that God's love is the motivation whereby He sends Himself. God's love is sacrificial, we would say. In His love, God gave. And He gave His Son, His only begotten Son, His one and only Son. The One in whom He was well pleased, He tells us. He sent Jesus into the world on a mission to Give His life so that we could live with Him eternally. Of course, John 3.16 comes to mind again. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. But when John says that God is love in this particular verse, like verse 8, it says because God is love, He is not telling us that there is some nebulous thing out in the universe called love and that the God of the Bible must measure up to it. God is not defined by love. Rather, love is defined by God. So I've said it this way, and you've heard others say it this way as well. God is love, but love is not God. And if that's a confusing concept to you, let me try to tease it out a little bit more. In our culture today, love is viewed as though it is some transcendental emotive force that can be used to justify pretty much anything because the force of love has become kind of the universal trump card, the the universal mic drop argument. In our culture, it is viewed as wrong to place any moral boundaries or judgments on love. Love means unconditional acceptance and the end of judgment. And that's a cultural definition. And and here's what that looks like. Many have come to think that there is no greater authority than love. And this gives rise to statements like this. If two people love each other, well then of course, we should just accept that. If two people love each other, then who are we to judge their love? Love is love, right? Or like... John mentioned earlier, those atheistic statements. Well, if God is loving, then surely He wouldn't do this. And the whole point is to say, we have this definition of love out here, and God is not living up to our definition of love. In each of these statements, we are developing a view of love, and we have given it an authority that is higher and more important than God. We aren't looking to God, asking the question, hey, God, would You define love for us so that we can know the truth about love? Would You show us love so that we can know what love truly looks like? Instead, we're coming up with our own cultural view of what love is, and we're deifying that view. Does that make sense? In short, our culture has made an idol out of love. But if we shift back over to reality for a minute, God is love means that God defines what love is, not us. God is love. If we want to truly understand love, we must look to God and have Him define love for us because He is love. There is no higher nor more beautiful love than God's love. And as we look to Scripture, we see that God's love is spoken of in a variety of ways. But all of it, rests on the basis of God giving to us something of Himself that we could never have earned. He owes us nothing. And He chooses to love us unconditionally. By the way, there are more than one aspect of God. There there are more than one aspect to the love of God. Um, You're familiar with D.A. Carson. Some of you are. If you're not, D.A. Carson... Brilliant scholar, Christian scholar, and he's written a little book. It's, it's little, but it's rich in content. The title of the book is The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Have you ever heard of that? If you want to study this in more detail, I highly recommend the book. It's a short book. You can get through it in a short amount of time, but it's pretty rich in the concepts. And what he does in the book, what Carson does, is he looks at all of Scripture and he kind of develops these categories for understanding the various ways in which God expresses his love. And he doesn't express all of those aspects of his love to the same people, group, and to, the same, to, to everyone. So I'll give you some of the categories that he comes up with. Number one, one of the ways that God shows his love is God has this peculiar love that exists within the relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. We call it intra-Trinitarian love. There's another big word for it. Jesus talks about this love um, when He's praying in the the high priestly prayer in John 17. He he asks the Father um, to to show His love and to um, display that love that He had with the Father before the foundation of the world. This is a a love that exists between the Son and the Father. So this would be a form of love that is only expressed within the Godhead. Another form of God's love is God's providential love over all that He has made. We generally call this common grace. Y'all heard that phrase before? Common grace? I'm going to talk about common grace in a minute when we look at grace specifically. But this is a form of God's love. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. God has a general love that is displayed over all of creation. He gives life to all living creatures. And this is a specific form of God's love, this providential love. A third form of God's love would be God's salvific stance toward the fallen world. And this um, this is not the same thing as saving grace but it's the way in which the Scriptures communicate the love that God has for the world at large. For instance, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. This is something of God's salvific stance toward all of the fallen world. This love does not result in universal salvation, but it reflects God's merciful impulse, God's loving desire for all humans uh, to repent. The fourth aspect of God's love is God's particular saving and electing love towards um, His people. This love necessarily results in salvation. This love was, we're told, established before the foundation of the world. This is the love that will accomplish God's redemptive purpose. This is the love that God has for His chosen People. And you can insert chosen people, you can insert the word elect there. Whatever words you want to use that you see throughout Scripture, this is a category of God's love that we see. And a fifth and final, God's love toward His own people in a provisional way. This would be God's fatherly love that He displays. That love that disciplines His sons. Right? So, there's a lot that we can think about. There's a lot we can study. If we begin to look at God's love, we will see a lot of things. But what we first need to do is to allow the Word of God to define what love looks like. Let God define what love looks like. What love is defined by. And the love of God is worth marveling over. The, the world doesn't get to define it. The Scriptures do Love is God's idea. And if you want to understand and grasp the reality of love, genuine love, you look to Him. God's love is perfect. God's love is holy. God's love is not blind. It is not weak. It is not unjust. It is not foolish. It is perfect. But there's more than just love in God. So we've talked about the love of God. Let's talk about the holiness of God. I probably should have started here. But I wanted to start where the scriptures I used in that transition helped to go. The holiness of God. What passage of scripture in your mind, if you have a passage of scripture in mind, makes you think about the holiness of God and kind of rises to the top? Is there a passage of scripture? Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. What is it about Isaiah 6? Anybody want to tell me about Isaiah 6? I saw a Lord high and lifted up. The train rode through the whole temple them around him, covering their eyes and their feet and their wings were and uh, he said he was struck with the holiness so much that he he felt that the weight of his own sin. He said, I'm not a I am not a I'm a man of unclean lips and i live one of the people of so Yeah. He recognized God is holy and so in that passage in Isaiah 6, which is it's one of those quintessential passages, not only do we see all of that happening, but there's actually a song that those, those angelic beings sing. And that song is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. And that phrase, the whole earth is full of His glory, the glory of God would best be described as the impact of God's presence. Like it's it's weighty, it's heavy. It, it, it's not necessarily an attribute of God so much as it is the the impact of God being in the room. Right? That's the glory of God filling the earth, and it's enough to fill the whole earth. But the attribute of God that they sing about is the holiness of God. And that's not the only time we see those beings around the throne of God singing that song. I'm sure you don't remember it, but when I preached through Revelation 4, however many months ago, we read this. Starting in Revelation 4, verse 6, "...and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind." The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, I don't know if you know this about... the the formulation of the holy, 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 but the way that we would understand it is that each holy would... every time they would say it again, it would repeat it. It would get louder to to emphasize the holiness of God until the only thing in our minds is the idea of the holiness of this being. And of all of God's creatures... we've we've studied angels recently in our study in the revelation of all of god's creatures these angels these angelic beings that they're called the burning ones in the revelation they are given the closest access to god of all of the creatures they dwell in his presence and as awesome as these beings are they are mere creatures they are finite god is the creator he is infinite And these beings exist because God made them and He spoke them into being and then He gave them the ability to sing. And if there's any being in creation that can marvel at something related to God's character and nature just by virtue of their proximity to Him, it would be these beings. And the thing that they speak of most is the holiness of God. Of all the things they could sing about, They sing about His holiness. R.C. Sproul reminds us, the Bible never says that God is love, 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 or that God is mercy, 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 nor is He wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that He is holy, holy, holy. What does it mean for God to be holy? Anybody want to take a stab at that? What does it mean for God to be holy? Pure. Way of saying it's like you know I'm sure there's a technical way in which this is completely wrong, but uh, the way that it seems to me is that it's like it's like a word for the fact that God is perfectly all of His other attributes like perfectly just, perfectly loving, perfectly all at all of those things that we're not. That is holiness. Well, I mean, and then and then of course you know there's a certain amount of it. that there's a certain way in which we are made holy to a degree, right? And, but it would be, I, I guess, the, the degree to which God imparts those things on us. But that, I mean, that's the way I understand the word. I don't know if that's yeah. Cut off base. <laughs> no, I think there's. I think you're getting you're getting at it. What what holiness is? Anybody else want to take a stab at it? Separate. There's none like him. Yeah. He stands apart. Yeah. Separate. Perfect. Pure. Incomparable. The, the holiness of God kind of gets at, or maybe I should say it this way, holiness is God's essential attribute. No other word can adequately describe His perfection, His uniqueness, His moral purity, His infinite power. Everything that makes God God is communicated in the word holy. It describes His essential Godness. And I know that's not a word, but I like it. (laughs) The primary meaning of the word, just the etymology of the word, means that he is separate. It means that he is essentially other. He's a cut above. He is different from us. When we use, well, he's not just different from us, he's different from all of his creation. He stands apart from his creation in his uniqueness. When we use the word holy to describe God, we are saying that he is not like us. In fact, there is no being in the universe that is like Him. He is holy. And even though we do, as one of those reflective attributes, as His uh, redeemed children, we are called to holiness and we can pursue holiness. We'll we'll never achieve holiness and we'll never achieve thrice holiness. He alone is God and therefore He alone is truly holy. He is transcendently separate, far above and beyond us, so much so that He is almost totally foreign to us. In fact, He is totally foreign to us, save for the fact that He has chosen to reveal Himself to us. (coughs) Stephen Sharnock, I mentioned Sharnock last week, he tells us, Power is God's hand and arm. Omniscience is His eye. Mercy is His bowels. Eternity is His duration. And holiness is His beauty. I like that. God is holy. And the way I usually follow up that statement is to say God is holy and we are not. Which makes it all the more confusing when the Scriptures tell us that we are to be holy for He is Holy. And what the Scriptures help us understand is that when we are grafted into Christ, when we are born again by faith, and when we become filled with the Spirit of God, that we are called then as new creatures to pursue the relationship with God where we put off sin and we become more and more like Christ, That's that part of sanctification. We're transformed to be more like our Savior, more like Christ, therefore more holy, more set apart from the world, more like our Lord. We will not reach that goal in our lifetime, I do not believe, but we pursue holiness in response to God's love and... If I'm reading 1 Corinthians 15 correctly, there is coming a time when our corruptible flesh will put on an incorruption. And that will happen when Christ returns and not before. And until that time, we are to strive to be more like our Holy Father by putting off sin and following after Christ. So God is loving. God is... Holy. Now let's talk about something that's probably a little more familiar to us. Maybe, maybe those are familiar to us. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about the grace of God. How many of y'all are, are encouraged by the idea of going out into the wilderness and sitting by a lakeside? with nothing but you and the Lord and just staring at a lake in complete peace and calm. How many of y'all like, that sounds delightful to you? Of course, the man in the room with all the children is saying, yes, that's, that sounds delightful. <laughs> the men in the room and women in the room with all the children. There is something almost mysteriously peaceful that occurs when we stand on the banks of pond or lake and admire the calm surface of the water. And when the waters are undisturbed, especially like early in the morning, when the waters are undisturbed, it looks like a mirror and it reflects the sky above, right? And with just a little bit of an imagination, we can um, you know, think that maybe this is a, a mystical portal into another world, another world that looks much like the world we inhabit, except eerily upside down, right? I mean, all of the imagination of my 12-year-old self is coming into my mind at this point. But in one second, all of the peace and all of the calm and all of the tranquility of that moment can be completely erased. All you need is a little stone. And all you need to do is throw that stone somewhere out into the water and the the mystery of that scene will completely vanish. Just like that. The glassy surface will be broken up and disrupted by the impact of the stone. Right where the stone hits the water, there will be this little splash, and then you know, these concentric circles of waves will begin to flow out. And before it's, you know it, just a few moments after that, and that tranquil lake will, will be completely filled with little ripply waves, and all the peace is disturbed. Now, I say that to kind of put a picture in your mind that I'm going to attach to this. When God created the heavens and the earth, the water and the dry lands, the plants and the animals, and humanity as well, the Bible helps us to understand that creation was in a place of peace and calm. The Hebrew term that is used to describe that harmony is shalom. It was a state of peace, a state of unity. And it reflected... God in a particular way. The the, the creation reflected the goodness of God and the perfection of God and the beauty of God and all of the different things that it reflected. But into that world of beauty and peace and calm came our enemy who deceived our first parents, leading them into rebellion and open sin against their creator. And this act of rebellion was like a stone being thrown out into the pool. And the reverberation of Adam and Eve's sin has spread out to cover every one of us, all the way down to even our children. Everything, every aspect of creation as we know it. And the question at that point is, well, what is God going to do? What is God going to do about the disturbance that has entered into His peaceful creation? Well, it's not really what is God going to do in, in the sense of there being one thing. There are many things that God does in response to that. And we'll talk about some of those next week. But one of the ways that God responds to this, we read about in the New Testament specifically. Paul tries to help us understand it. He says this in Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2 tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that you cannot boast. In the midst of the disturbance that our sin has brought into creation, part of God's plan was to extend grace so that He might save a people for Himself. And as we read the Scriptures, we come to understand that our only hope of being rescued from this problem that our sin has created is for God to extend grace to us. The only way to avoid His justice is for God to do something in extending His grace. And grace is that attribute of God Wherein He grants to us something that we have not earned. And you might want to—what's the definition you learned about grace? Getting what you didn't earn. Okay. Receiving what you have not earned. You probably heard it referred to as unmerited favor. Some have discovered that the letters in the word grace can stand for God's riches at Christ's expense might be one way to learn it. But this is only defining God's saving grace. There's more to the grace of God. Grace in and of itself as a word means somebody has received something they have not earned. But as we study the grace of God, we understand that it's important for us to put grace into categories in the same way that we would put love into various categories. We put God's grace into certain categories. And this is where we're going to talk about the difference between common grace and saving grace. Now, y'all nodded your heads earlier when I asked you if you have ever heard of those two distinctions. So I'm just going to assume that we have and move on. Common grace and saving grace are the two categories we're looking at. Common grace is seen in the gifts that God gives to all men, such as life, health, strength, and even special skills. Nations and communities and families and individuals all benefit from the common grace of God. In other words, God doesn't owe any human being anything save the judgment for our sin. And yet, in His common grace, He gives to all mankind life and breath and all things. allows the rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike, according to Matthew 5.45 and the Old Testament Psalms. Common grace, however, does not save man from their sin because it does not change the human heart. Salvation is a work of God in the heart. And this common grace doesn't necessarily touch the heart. In, it's certainly not in that way. So what is saving grace and how is it different? Saving grace is the perfection of God's character that is exercised only toward those that He has chosen to love from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. The the categories, and when you get into these categories, there may be different ways that individuals would try to define these words, but the words elect and the words chosen, the words those elect from before the foundation of the world, that kind of terminology is talking about the individuals for whom God has set upon His electing love from before the foundation of the world. That's the language from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God made a distinction all the way back in Abraham's day. And he says, I've chosen you. I didn't choose you because you were the biggest nation, the most powerful nation, or the most holy nation. I chose you because I chose you. In other words, this is an act of God's sovereign grace to extend my purpose into you. And that's why we call Israel the chosen people of God. That same concept of God's electing love or God's choosing of His people extends to the New Testament believer as well. And and the one thing that makes it grace above everything else is that those who believe have not earned it in any way. The elect do not deserve the grace of God at all. Rather, we deserve God's wrath and judgment. And yet, in His love and according to His plan, God has chosen to pour out His saving grace on a specific people and He does so freely and because He has chosen in His sovereign will to do so. God is under no obligation to save any man. But He gives saving grace to those whom He wills. Here's A.W. Pink. If y'all have heard of A.W. Pink, you know this is going to be difficult language, but here Here it goes. Divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of blessings upon those who have no merit in themselves and for which no compensation is demanded from them. Nay, more, it is the favor of God shown to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. I'll stop there even though Pink goes on to say some. Pretty amazing things. God's grace is God's favor freely given to those who do not deserve it. It is the unmerited blessing of salvation and forgiveness that is received not by our working, but by our believing. Saving grace does not come to us by works. We don't earn it through church activities and attendance. It is freely bestowed on all who believe according to the old hymn. But there are some characteristics of saving grace. So if you're writing down notes or if you're just going to wait till I send mine to you, here are, the, here are the three characteristics of saving grace. Grace is eternal. According to multiple passages of Scripture, Ephesians 1 verse 4 being one of them, the grace of God, the saving grace of God was planned before the world began. And it's not just Paul who talks about it. Uh, well, it's not just Paul who talks about it in Ephesians. He talks about it also when he writes to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Grace is eternal. Saving grace is also free. It cannot be earned, deserved, or purchased. Romans chapter 3 and verse 24 says, we are justified by His grace as a gift. By the way, part of the definition of grace means you can't earn it, deserve it, or purchase it. And the Scriptures bear that out. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Saving grace is eternal, and saving grace is free, and saving grace is sovereign. God exercises it toward those whom He chooses, and He is under no obligation to do so, nor compulsion. Exodus 33:19 God says I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And you can read that again in Romans chapter 9. So the three characteristics of saving grace are that they are eternal and free and sovereign. And saving grace I just can't help but go further into this one. It's also one of those aspects of the Godhead that is participated in by all three persons. If you read Ephesians 1, and I'll have is my digital Bible, So, but if you read Ephesians 1 as it begins to um, introduce the concept of God's electing love and then how that electing love is displayed through the Son and then how that electing love is uh, applied through the Holy Spirit, you come to understand in Ephesians 1 that all three persons of the Trinity are involved in the work of redemption, in the expression and giving and accomplishing of God's saving grace. God the Father is the One who planned salvation from eternity past to lavish grace upon His people. He is the fountain of all grace. Christ the Son is referred to in theological terms as the channel of grace. Apart from the work of Christ upon the cross to atone for sinners, the grace of God would never be extended to us because we would be required to pay the penalty for our sin and satisfy the justice of God. And then third, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of grace. He bestows and He applies the gift of grace to our hearts in the new birth. I and mean, There's a lot we could go into there. There's so many different pieces of that. But if you want to learn more about that, you want to look into that more specifically, I encourage you to look at Ephesians chapter 1. It talks about all the spiritual blessings that we have received in the heavenly realms through Christ and it breaks it down into the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Spirit of God. It's a beautiful passage. So, we've looked at the love of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God. Now let's look at the last thing for tonight. The mercy of God. The mercy of God. Psalm 136 verse 1 says, "Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, his mercy endures forever. As we think about the mercy of God, um, it's, it's, it's good to understand that mercy and grace are similar. In what ways are they similar and in what ways are they different? What's the difference between mercy excuse me, mercy and grace? Grace is something you get. Mercy is something you don't get. Okay? Yeah, I know what you're doing there. Something you deserve is withheld. Yeah. So if grace is God giving to us something we have not deserved and have not earned, mercy is Him withholding the thing we have deserved and have earned. Grace is God freely giving us His love. Mercy is God purposefully withholding His wrath. God's mercy and grace are really two sides of the same coin. Mercy is that attribute of God that is seen when He withholds the punishment from us that we deserve. Grace is the attribute of God that is seen when He gives to us what we do not deserve. All men everywhere deserve judgment because all men everywhere have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 We have earned God's wrath by our sin, but in His mercy... He withholds that wrath from us. That's how we would understand the relationship between mercy and grace. Mercy is God's readiness to relieve the suffering of His creatures. It is that goodness of God which is extended towards sinners as a withholding of punishment due for our sin. And mercy is illustrated all throughout Scripture. Obviously, mercy is an attribute that is ascribed to God throughout the Psalms and and elsewhere. But mercy is actually illustrated first, I believe, all the way back in the Garden of Eden. I want you to put your mind there. We see the mercy of God displayed in Genesis 3, and it is directed toward Adam and Eve. And, And here's why I argue that point. When when God created Adam and Eve, male and female, He blessed them, He placed them in the garden, and He gave them a series of commands. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and you can eat from the fruit of every tree in the garden, save that one. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because when you do that, what does He tell them? You will surely die. So as the story unfolds, if I'm... You know, a kid reading the Bible for the first time and, and I see that. This is God. He made everything. And then God told him, don't do this because when you do, this is what's going to happen. And then as the story unfolds and the serpent slithers his way into the garden and he deceives Adam and Eve, and guess what they do? They eat the fruit. And then God shows up. God comes down into the garden. They they hide. Then they cover the, their shame with fig leaves, right? They they were naked and unashamed, but now they're ashamed and hiding. And, and, the, and then God comes up, and the first thing that I expect God to do is to carry out the sentence for their crime, which is that they should die. Anybody else think that way? Okay. Then what happened there? Why did they not die? Why did God not carry out the sentence? Why did God not pour out upon them the consequences due them because of their sin? Because of his mercy, he withheld the punishment they deserved. He held back the sentence of death, and instead, he substituted the death of another to cover the shame of their nakedness and sin. Genesis chapter three and verse twenty-one. It says that he, he he took animal hides, which implies that an animal had to die, and then he fashioned clothes from that, and He covered the shame of their nakedness through sacrifice. Now, that's the very first picture we see. The first picture of the Gospel that we see. And it's also the first act of divine mercy that we see in the Bible is that God did not destroy Adam and Eve. And that should have told us something about God from the very beginning. God God is unique. He doesn't think the way we think. He thinks differently. When they sinned, God had a purpose and God had a plan. Even though we deserve wrath for our sin, judgment for our sin, God God covers our sin, but He withholds the judgment that we deserve. And why? Why? Was He under obligation to do this? we We didn't earn it. We had nothing to offer Him in that moment. Nothing to offer Him at all. He withheld judgment because, like we learned last week in Exodus 34, He is the Lord. The Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God shows mercy because He is merciful. God shows grace because He is gracious. God shows love because God is love. And God is holy. The love of God, the holiness of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God are important attributes. But there's more, obviously there's more for us to learn about God. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a teaser for next week. Alright, so we've been talking about R.C. Sproul a lot. I was talking to Cody today and he reminded me of an illustration that R.C. would use... Um, he used it often. He even wrote about it at times. But you can find this illustration. He talks about it online. And it's the, the, the way in which we become callous toward grace. Here's what he, he says. So Dr. Sproul, early on in his career, once was assigned to teach the course The Introduction to the Old Testament. And there were 250 first-year students enrolled in his class. He knew that it was going to be a difficult class to communicate personally with every student. just wasn't going to happen. So he set forth all the class requirements in the course syllabus, and he explained it on the first day of class. The students were required, according to the syllabus, to write three short papers during the semester. They only had to be like five pages each. The first one was due at noon on September 30th. The next one was due at noon on October 30th, and the last one was due at noon on November 30th. And he carefully explained to the whole class on that first day what he expected them to do. He emphasized the need to finish the papers on time. He said to them, let me make it perfectly clear. I want those papers on my desk at 12 noon on the assigned dates, or you will receive a failing mark. He told them, The only excuses he would uh, accept would be if you were confined to a hospital bed or if a family member had passed away. Other than that, have those papers in on the date at the time. Do you understand? And he says, 250 students says, yes, we understand. It's all perfectly clear. And then the semester got underway. At noon on September 30th, 225, out of the 250 students turned in their papers. And when Professor Sproul returned to his office, there were 25 students waiting timidly for him at the door. And here, these first year of college students, their first assignment, they hadn't completed the assignment. And they said, oh, Professor Sproul. And he tells the story, and it's often the case, or when he did tell the story, it's often the case that somebody from that class is in the audience. So he says, this is not a joke. This is not an illustration he made up. This actually happened. And they say, oh, Professor Sproul, please don't fail us on this assignment. Please give us one more chance. We are so sorry. Please give us just one more day. And, and Dr. Sproul said they looked so pathetic. He didn't want to hurt anyone, so he gave them a few days. He says, have it in, on my desk in three days' time. He showed them grace. Right? Okay. And then he tells them, okay, this can't happen again. Make sure that on October 30th at noon, those papers that you're supposed to write are on my desk. Absolutely, sir. We will absolutely do it. So they scamper off. They finish their papers. And then October 30th came. And he says 200. Out of the 250 turned in their papers. And this time, there were 50 students at his office door saying, oh, Dr. Sproul, please, we did it again. We, we didn't manage our time. Nobody taught us how to manage our time as freshmen. And college is harder than high school was. And we just don't know what to do. Could you please give us another chance and show us grace? And once again, all that happened and Sproul gave in. He said, okay, okay, okay. But don't let this happen again. I'll give you three days. Turn in your papers. Do you understand? Yes, sir, we understand. Yes, yes, yes. We love you, Professor Sproul. And he says that, and this is in one of those anecdotal moments, he says the, le- the next time he came into class, they were singing a song about the grace of Professor Sproul. And <laughs> it just made him feel wonderful, right? He felt like they've learned a lesson here. And then came November the 30th. He says only 150 students turned in their papers. And this time, the students gathered around him after class. And he said to them, where are your papers? And he asked one specifically, where is your paper? He said, oh, don't worry about it, Prof. I'll have it to you in about two or three days. No sweat. And at this point, Dr. Sproul was fed up. He stopped them all in their tracks. He pulled out the little grade book You know, a little black grade book, and he opened it, and he says, okay, um, Johnson, you don't have your paper, do you? He says, no, sir, but I'll have it to you in a couple days. He says, no, you won't. And he wrote down F, and he said it out loud, and everybody gasped. What are you doing? He says, "Um, well, where is your paper, Mr. Smith? And Smith said, I don't have my paper. So he wrote down in his F. And before, before you know it, somebody says, well, Dr. Sproul, that's not fair. And if, if you know Dr. Sproul, the, the, the look on his face is there. And, and they started saying, uh, he asked them, are you sure it's, it's not fair? No, no, it's, it's, it's not fair. And he looked at him and he says, you think I'm not being fair? And he looked back at the first guy and he says, you think I'm not being fair? Did you turn in your second paper late? he said yes sir so he went back to that other grade and he marked it from a B to an F (laughs) suddenly everyone was shocked and stricken completely silent and then he looked around the room and he says is there anyone else in the room who wants justice (laughs) and then he says this about they all dropped their heads and they walked out of the crash. But he said this, he said, at first, we are amazed by grace. And before long, we're not really surprised by grace. We just kind of assume it. And then before you know it, if we're not careful, we'll begin to demand grace. Believing it to be some inalienable right that we deserve. And when we get to that point, we've completely lost the definition of what grace is. Because we confuse justice with grace. And that's the teaser. Because next week, we're going to talk about justice. Yeah. Alright? Well, let me pray for you guys. Then we can talk ask questions. Father God, thank You for... Well, just thank You for revealing Yourself to us in Your Word. It, it is our task. It is part of our responsibility to seek to understand, to see what you've written, to see what you've given us, to see what you've preserved for us so that we can know you. And Father, where our knowledge is inaccurate or incomplete, I pray that you would show us grace and mercy and that you would allow us always to be amazed by that. But Father, I do thank you for this time. I thank You for the holiness that is revealed. I thank You for the grace and mercy that You extend to us. And I thank You for the love that You have shown to all who trust in Christ. I pray that we would not take these things for granted, but that we would marvel at them. I thank You and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.